So if you could turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 15, it's quite a long passage, it's quite a familiar passage, so switch your ears on and listen for new things. This is Jesus speaking. I'm still going to start reading at verse 11 of Luke 15. And Jesus said, a man had two sons. The younger of them said to his father, Father, give me the share of the estate that falls to me. So he divided his wealth between them. And not many days later, the younger son gathered everything together and went on a journey into a distant country. And there he squandered his estate with loose living. Now when he had spent everything, a severe famine occurred in the country and he began to be impoverished. So he went and hired himself out to one of the citizens of that land and he sent him into his fields to feed swine. And he would have gladly filled his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating and no one was giving anything to him. But when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have more than enough bread? But I am dying here with hunger. I will get up and go to my father and will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your, in your sight. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me as one of your hired men. So he got up and came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him and kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven, and in your sight I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to the slaves, Quickly, bring out the best robe and put it on him, and put a ring on his hands and sandals on his feet, and bring the fattened calf, Kill it and let us eat and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and has come to life again. He was lost and has been found. And they began to celebrate. Now his older son was in the field. And when he came and approached the house, he heard music and singing. Sorry, music and dancing. And he summoned one of the servants and began inquiring what these things could be. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he became angry and was not willing to go in. And his father came out and began pleading with him. But he answered and said to his father, Look, for so many years I have been serving you, and I have never neglected a command of yours. And yet... You have never given me a young goat so that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your wealth with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you have always been with me, and all that is mine is yours. But we had to celebrate and rejoice, for this brother of yours was dead and has begun to live and was lost and has been found. A man had two sons. That's how the story starts. And that means there are three characters. So we're going to look at them in turn. 
So the first character is the youngest son. And definitely the way the story is kind of, you know, headlined in my Bible of the prodigal son and probably in all of yours, and the way it's been retold over the years, is you, you would be led to believe that the prodigal son is the main character in this story. I, I don't think he is. Um, and I'll tell you why later. Um, but he is the first one who does anything in the story. And he goes to his father and he says, Father, give me a share of my inheritance. Give me a share of the estate that falls to me. Now, in this, in this culture, in this Jewish culture, uh, which uh, the story was being spoken into, um, it, the, the way it was written down, and we can read it in the early part of the Old Testament, is that the eldest son would get a double share of the inheritance. And so if you work on your fractions, um, then you'll find that the youngest son gets a third, and the eldest son gets two-thirds of the inheritance. I'm assuming there are no other children. Um, but, and it's not the fact that he asks for the inheritance per se, the, the, that was possible for the, for the son to get the inheritance early. That was not illegal, if you like. But it's the fact that what he's saying to the father when he asked for the inheritance is he's wishing that the father was dead. A guy called Kenneth Bailey who is a a, a New Testament scholar and he spent many, many years in the Middle East studying the kind of cultures and and, and working in there and he lectures on the New Testament and I I found his writing very, very helpful. But he he writes this in his book, The Cross and the Prodigal. There's a book recommendation. Um, And he says this, Granted, the legal procedures were in place if the father chose to use them. But it is, and most certainly was, unthinkable for any son to request his portion of the family wealth while the father was still alive. Every Middle Eastern peasant understands this instinctively. Then he says, with endless village groups all across the Middle East, I have tested this thesis. The answer has always been the same. Again and again, I have engaged in some form of the following conversation. Has anyone made ever made such a request in your village? Never. Could anyone ever make such a request? Impossible. If anyone ever did, what would happen? His father would become very angry and refuse. Why? The request means he wants his father to die. So when Jesus starts to tell this story... I think there would have been gasps in the audience as the son has the audacity to basically say to his dad, I don't want you round anymore. I wish you were dead. Give me the inheritance that falls to me. Bailey goes on to say that although the son hasn't broken the law, what he has done in that interchange is broken the father's heart. He's totally disregarded his family and his father. But, the father gives him the inheritance. It's amazing. He doesn't just say, and this is the bit that will be yours. He actually gives it to him and says, there we are, do what you will with it. Would most likely have been in the form of land. And he gives it to the son, and the son converts it into cash very quickly, uh, because we read in verse 13, and not many days later, off he goes. And so he goes. The son goes off. It says that he went into a a faraway country. 
And there he pursues his own interests, his own pleasures. He squanders the wealth on loose living, we're told, whatever that might be. He was on a quest for pleasure. That's what he was doing. He had this wad of cash in his pocket and he just was off to have a good time. And we live in a society where that is the right way to live if we listen to the messages. I was um, on some public transport the other day and I saw an advert advertising um, a well-known electronic internet-based way of payment which advertised this. Nothing should come between you and everything. Nothing should come between you and everything. It's interesting. And there's another um, financial company who've been in the news recently who one of their advertising slogans is tired of waiting, question mark, money to your account in 15 minutes. We know where that leads to. But it's this wholehearted approach. If you, if you look at the language, the World Cup's on at the moment, Adidas are one of the main sponsors, it's all in or nothing. It's this kind of wholehearted approach to pleasure, pursuit of success, whatever it might be. It's this instant gratification that we're, we're, we're held up as this alluring thing that will fulfil us once we get there. And that's the lie the younger son believed. Just go out, have a good time, you've got your money, live life to the full. But it's a focus on self It's a focus on self-fulfillment. It's on a focus on satisfying your own pleasures. It's kind of hedonistic in its in its emphasis. But that's what he does, and he fritters away his inheritance, and then misfortune comes. The circumstances take a turn for the worse. The money runs out, and he sinks to the level of working with pigs. He hasn't even got enough of his own food to feed himself, and so he fancies the pods which are fed to the pigs. Not pleasant. And again, let's just think about the culture that this is being spoken into. So a Jewish culture, the Jews' view of pigs is that they were unclean animals. That's what the law said, they were unclean animals. If you came into contact with an unclean animal, it meant that you were unclean until the evening. If you were unclean, that meant if you came into contact with other people, you would make them unclean. So you therefore didn't come into contact with other people, because that wasn't fair. Likewise, there was no way you could enter the presence of God. This man, day after day after day, made himself unclean by working with pigs. So he spent most of his life unable to come into contact with other people or God. That's the depths that he sank to. And ultimately, that is a picture of what sin does to us. It separates us off from God and ultimately separates us off from other people because it focuses on yourself. It's purely selfish. It's destructive in its nature. And so he found himself working among the pigs. And it's at that point that we kind of see this light bulb come on and he realises that actually back home the people who his dad employs have things to eat they're not kind of desiring the pig food which is the position he's in and so he thinks through the situation he kind of weighs it up 
and he decides that the best way he can advantage himself is to go back home, appear very contrite, admit that he has sinned, and ask for his father to take him back as a worker. And we haven't got time to look at it now, but the phrase that he uses, Father, I have sinned against heaven and in your sight, is almost exactly the same word that Pharaoh uses when speaking to Moses when the plagues are coming. And he says, Moses, I've sinned against the Lord your God. And that we know from that story, that's not a picture of true repentance in Pharaoh. It's trying to manipulate Pharaoh and God to some extent to get what he wants. And I would suggest that this is a scheme that the younger son conjures up to get some food, essentially. I might be taking it too far, but that's what I think. And I think Jesus would have used that phrase quite deliberately, you see, when he's, he's speaking in this parable. Anyway, his conclusion is that he should return. He should return to work for the Father. Um, but he is a son of the Father, and yet at this point, he isn't at all thinking like a son. He's thinking like a slave. And sons just get to live with the father. That's what they get to do. Sons get to inherit the inheritance. They don't have to work for it. You may say, well, about family business. and That's different, isn't it? Because although you may work in the family business, ultimately the son then inherits the business. So you kind of, you know, you still inherit the inheritance. But here he's saying, I'm going to go home and I'm going to just work as a hired worker. That's my expectation. He's thinking like a slave. He's not thinking like a son anymore. And so he heads home. So that's the first character. The second character is the eldest son, who doesn't really do much until quite late on in the story, um, where we see in verse 25 that he's in the field uh, working. And then he heads home. Now, he wouldn't have been working the manual labour. He would have been overseeing the workers because this was the heir apparent. This was, you know, he didn't get his hands dirty in that sense. But as he returns to the house, he hears music and he hears dancing, if you can hear dancing. But he knows that something's going on. And I find his first reaction quite interesting. He doesn't go, party, let's get in there. He summons one of the servants and says, what's going on? At this point, he's informed of two bits of information, either one of which should have thrilled him. The first is, your brother has come, verse 27. He's been waiting, surely, for his brother to return home. Surely? This long-lost brother who's gone to make his fortune or lose his fortune elsewhere. So your brother has come. Secondly, your father has killed the fattened calf. This was the calf that would have been, you know, feed up the turkey for Christmas and all that. This was some serious calf that would have been uh, well-fed and would have fed a lot of people. You know those hog roasts? You know, I kind of imagine it's that sort of thing. It's very yummy. Um... Anyway, second reason to celebrate. If, you kill the, if your father kills the fattened calf, that means there's a party you need to get to. There's a good reason for doing that. But instead, he became angry. 
Verse 29. Oh, sorry, so the father goes out to speak to him. And so verse 29, we see his response to his father. He says, look, for so many years I have been serving you. Wow. So many years. Can you see that kind of pent-up anger inside the older son? For so many years I've been serving you. What have I got out of it? Absolutely nothing. You haven't even given me a calf. A goat. Or calf. He says, I've never neglected a command. It's the kind of, your wish has been my command. I've done everything that you've ever asked of me. All these years. And yet nothing. Nothing in return. And instead, he goes on to say, but when this son of yours, not when my brother returns, when this son of yours returns, having devoured your wealth with prostitutes, bit of conjecture there from him maybe, but the fact that he refers to your wealth and yet he thinks that he's owed something, you haven't even given me a calf, a goat, that's interesting. You killed the fattened calf for him. Well, no, the fattened calf is killed because the sun returns, but it's a celebration for the village. It's a celebration for everyone. Rather than just a young goat given that you might celebrate with a few friends, which is what he was asking for. Can you see that the same issue that the younger son had is the one the eldest son had as well? It was all about me. Five times in verse 29 he uses the word I, me or my. All these years I've been serving you. It's all about what he has been doing. And again, the real issue is that he is not thinking like a son. He's thinking like a slave. I've been serving you. I've been working for you. Everything you've done. It's not how a son talks. It's how a slave talks. And I wonder, as I've studied this, whether this was the real reason why I didn't want to preach on this passage. Because God has highlighted in me much, sorry, I will, <coughs> much that is unappealing and unattractive in this elder son is present in my heart. And I know I'm the eldest in my family, I don't think that that is the reason. I think it is a particular issue that many eldest siblings have, but it's not exclusively that, so you might not be off the hook. But the doing the right thing that is often the, where the eldest sibling sits, because you don't have to plough your own furrow, because you just do the right thing and everyone's happy. If you're a younger sibling as in this instance, maybe there needs to be a bit of rebellion to get yourself noticed. But this elder son, he is seemingly faultless in his attitude towards his father. He's compliant, he is loyal, he doesn't rock the boat, he doesn't rebel or push boundaries, he just does the right thing. That was me. I was dependable, I was respectable, 
I was a credit to my parents. They are all good things. But abiding by the letter of the law actually doesn't get you anywhere. And doing what is expected and what is right doesn't mean that your heart is in the right place. And I think the key thing that we see coming out of this story for the elder son is that because he views himself as doing the right thing, read verse 29 again, it then means that he feels he has the right to judge other people against the standard that he has set. When this son of yours, who has devoured all your wealth on prostitutes, comes back, you take the moral high ground. And that is that eldest son thinking is horrible. It is horrible because there is nothing of grace in it. It is all based on a performance mentality which says that I deserve this because I have done that. Because I have served you these years, I deserve at least a goat. But what it also does is it has the potential to put in you a huge insecurity. Because if you've worked hard to then gain something, that thing that you've gained might be lost at any moment if your performance dips. Or if someone comes along and performs better. And you get plagued of a a fear of being overlooked or overtaken, or sidelined, or, you know, a better model comes along. Someone performs better than you, and therefore you're no longer worthy of the attention of the Father. Now, a good test for elder son thinking is this. What is your first thought when someone new walks into the room? If you're a preacher, it might be, hope they're not a preacher. Hope they don't know as much about the Bible as I do. Hope they're not as eloquent. And you can put whatever you want in that space where I say preacher. But if you think like that, then it means there's elder some thinking in there. Because that comes out of a performance mentality. It comes out of a, if I'm not good enough, then something else might happen. Someone else might get to do it. It is thinking that hasn't grasped grace. It's thinking that is not the thinking of sons. It's the thinking of slaves. And that's what the eldest son teaches us. So that's the second person in the story. The third person the main character is the father. And I want to look at just two aspects of this. The way he reacts to each of the sons. So the way he reacts to the younger son. I mean, this dad, what must he have felt the day that he gave his inheritance to the son and the son left? What must he have thought? All we know 
in verse 20 is that the father sees him when he's a long way off. That says to me, the father has been waiting. He's been longing. He's been pacing up and down every morning, scanning the horizon. Is he going to appear today in the evening, scanning the horizon, wondering if he's going to be home in time for bedtime? hoping for the sun to return until one day one day while he was still a long way off the father saw him I don't know what it is that you can recognise about a person so far off in the distance the physique maybe the the kind of walk I don't know clearly not the designer clothes because he'd lost everything but he knows this is his son and he knows he's coming back. So what would be the proper thing for the father to do? Well, the proper thing would be this. This boy, young man, has brought absolute disgrace, not only to the father, not only to the family, but to the village as well, because you identify with the village. And so... What happened here in Jewish culture was that if someone who had left and lost everything in a Gentile land, which we assume it is because it was a country far off and there was only one Jewish land, so he comes back, nothing, what would happen is if he dared to return, the village would kind of gather as he arrived at the edge of the village. And they would put him in the middle of the village, they would surround him, and they would take a large pot and they would smash it in front of him, and they would shout at him, you are the cut-off one. That's what should have happened. The father, meanwhile, wouldn't be part of that ceremony. The father would be waiting in his house. He would wait there until the ceremony is over, and then the son would go and wait outside the house. And when the father deemed that he wanted to meet his son, he would summon him in and he would be very, very angry. The son would have to apologise profusely for absolutely everything he'd done. And then in the plan that the son cooks up here, he would then plead to be taken on as a a worker and he would not be expecting to live in the village anymore. He would live in the next village and just work in the fields. That's what should have happened. Now remember, this is Jesus telling the story. It probably doesn't shock us in quite the way it might have shocked his, his listeners here. But while he was still a long way off, off, his father saw him, felt compassion for him, and ran and embraced him. Another cultural point here, old men don't run. This, this father wouldn't have run for years, not for those reasons. The, he wouldn't have run for years. It's not a dignified way to behave. You shuffle slowly. That's a sign of dignity. Not only that, he decides to run. In order to run... He has to gather up his robes so that his legs are freed to run. Well, exposing your legs, again, 
Huge shame would come upon you if you exposed your legs in that way. So now we've got in our minds a picture of the father who sees his son far off, who is filled with compassion and who gathers up his robes, rushes out of the house or out of the village to meet his son and embraces him. The village would have been shocked. The village now, instead of focusing on the shaming of the son, getting ready to cut him off in this ceremony, instead would pour their shame on the father because he has undignified himself amongst them all. He has humiliated himself. And isn't there in there a wonderful picture of what Jesus has done for us? The fact that the father didn't stay in the house, but he descended to the level of us and he runs to meet us, taking on himself all the shame and humiliation that should have been laid on us. And Ephesians 2.13 says that he did it while we were still far off. And so the father ran and ran and ran and he embraced his son, showing reconciliation. He orders a new robe, showing acceptance. He gives him a, a ring, bestowing status of sonship on him again because it would have had the family seal, the authority of the father. And he throws him a party. I think we know about parties this afternoon. But it's interesting that each of the three stories in Luke 15 ends with a party, ends with a celebration. So that's the way the father reacts to the younger son. How does he react to the older son? Well, the elder son, remember, he comes back from the fields and he won't join the party. He waits outside. So what does the father do? He again humiliates himself by leaving his own party and going outside the house and speaking with the other son. Pleading with him, we read in verse 28. I think at this point it's worth thinking about the audience that Jesus is speaking to. You read verse 1 and 2 of Luke 15. Now all the tax collectors and the sinners were coming near to Jesus to listen to him. Both the Pharisees and the scribes began to grumble, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So as this story unfolds, Jesus is speaking to these mainly Pharisees and scribes. They're the kind of target audience, but the tax collectors and sinners would have been around. And so as the story unfolds, the Pharisees and the scribes would have been feeling pretty pleased with themselves because they know they're not like the son who runs off. They haven't wasted the father's inheritance. They would never do anything like that. They're good Jews. They would never descend to the level of working with pigs. Not like these tax collectors who are very happy to collude with the Romans. No good Jew would do that, but the tax collectors did. But then as the eldest son comes into view, I wonder whether the emotion changed a bit. The truth is, 
that Jesus, when he came, we read in Ephesians 2.17, says, And he came and preached peace to you who were far away, and peace to those who were near. For through him, Jesus, we both have access in one spirit to the Father. These Pharisees, these scribes, were near. They were good Jews. They didn't leave the Father's house. But they refused to join the party. And Jesus gets them at the end of this story. And again, for me, this is where Jesus nailed me, really. You see, you can be at home with the Father. You can be living in the same house as the Father, just like the eldest son, and yet not know the love of the Father. You can have people look at you as the heir apparent, admire your knowledge of the truth and understanding and insight, and still not know the love of the Father. You can have the whole of the inheritance at your disposal, because there's nothing left for the other one to have. It's all yours. You can still not know the love of the Father. You can do and you can say all of the right things, all of the time, and still not know the love of the Father. And you can see the Father's love on display again and again and again, extravagant, giving out his inheritance like he doesn't care, welcoming back this brother like it doesn't matter. You can see it, and it can still be a distant, alien concept to you, a theory, a bit of head knowledge that has no basis in reality for you. You can still not know the love of the Father. And I believe that there are many people up and down the country in our churches who know it all up here. They know that Jesus has died for them. They're genuinely saved. They speak right, they look right, they do right, and yet they don't know the extent of the love of the Father. And I believe that's what God wants to bring afresh to us today. And I don't know how he's going to do it, but I believe that's what he wants to give us, is a fresh revelation of the extent of his love. That we may fall into the category of dirty and living with pigs, far off from God, far off from everything, and he welcomes us back. And somehow I find that a bit easier to manage in my thinking. But we can also be living right close and still not really let him in. There's a wonderful verse... Well, there are many wonderful verses. There's this one which I feel is particularly wonderful at the moment. 1 John 3, 1. See how great a love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. And that is what we are. That is what we are. He has poured out and lavished his love on us.